Hey y'all, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor at Emmanuel and Hookset. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. Our goal is to be a blessing to everyone who listens as you continue on your journey of faith. It's also our hope that you'll be encouraged to find a church to belong to so you can plug into that congregation and bless others with the gifts and experiences that God has entrusted you with. Well, I hope this podcast is a blessing to you and encourages you to get out there and be the blessing. God bless. Learn to discern. Let's take a look at the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born. And he said this, Thus says the Lord, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And in Matthew we see, that was a prophecy, in Matthew we see that prophecy fulfilled when Jesus was born and Herod was intimidated by this little child. He was afraid that child would grow up and, and seize the kingdom from him. Herod was a rather evil, evil man. Prideful and selfish. And this is what the Bible says. Herod, when he heard, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, he called, there was, the wise men were seeking Jesus. They'd studied scriptures and they came from afar and they followed the star that was above the place where Jesus lay, right? That's the story in the Bible. It's a true story. Well, before they got to Jesus, he called them in and, and they told him where the baby would be born. And, and then he was angry, exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all of its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he determined from the wise men. And there was weeping in Bethlehem and the surrounding communities. That's not really a happy prophecy, is it? I mean, that's a uh, Merry Christmas. But it's a true prophecy that occurred around the birth of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of that was to provide more evidence that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so when we look at the Old Testament and we see these prophecies fulfilled, we recognize that the Scriptures are what? What does it say on this slide? Listen, the scriptures are trustworthy. And we've been talking about this from the beginning of the series. The Bible said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And there are preachers and there are churches today that say, no, 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 we don't need a Sunday school faith for real world problems. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, do not allow, do not entertain thoughts that would allow you to doubt the Word of God that introduced you to Jesus Christ, the Savior. It's only the Word of God that reveals Christ to the world now. You follow? Without the Word of God, we would all be lost. The eyewitnesses of Christ are all dead and buried. They're gone. You're not going to meet someone who walked in Israel 2,000 years ago and knew Jesus in the flesh firsthand. But we have their accounts in the Bible. And those accounts are what? Trustworthy. Let's take a look at Romans chapter, Romans chapter 13, verse 8 through 10. We talked about the Ten Commandments last week. We talked about the, 
the purpose of the law, both in the lives of those who do not believe and the lives of believers. And I used a word that, that I hope stuck with you. We take the framework right, of the Ten Commandments and we can lay that over our lives and over decisions that we have to make, over perceptions and opinions and principles that we have in our lives. And if they don't agree with those ten, we can discern that something is wrong. Something is not right. And it needs to be corrected. Perception needs to be changed. Decision needs to be changed. Maybe someone that we were supporting politically, we need to kick them to the curb. You follow? So now we're going to take a, a gander at Romans 13. Last week I did mention briefly that the law is love. Oh, no man anything. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another, what does it say? Come on, man, rise and shine. What does it say? Has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Look now to John chapter 3, 14. John chapter 3, 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So let's define a couple of things here. First of all, who is the Son of Man? Jesus Christ. One of his, one of his favorite titles for himself appears to be, because he used it often, I am the Son of Man. He's also referred to as the Son of God. But when He came to the earth and He was born of a virgin, He took on flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John chapter 1, right? He wanted to make sure, I believe, that we understood that He was one of us. All God, but also all man. So when He says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, who is He talking about? He's talking about himself, Jesus. Now, as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so here is, the, here is a historical event that occurred in the, in the wilderness. Now, when, when Jesus was talking to this, this, um, this uh, secret disciple, he was explaining to him this story. And he was using the Old Testament to illustrate a truth. And you'll remember last, uh, about three weeks ago, we talked about the fact that when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, how he opened up the Old Testament scriptures and he showed his disciples how they spoke of him. Well, here's another incident. He's talking to this secret disciple and he says, listen, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, let me explain to you what that was all about. That was a foreshadowing of what must occur for not only the nation of Israel, but for the world. So what had happened, the nation of Israel had once again disobeyed God. They were hard-necked, they were stiff-necked, they were stubborn, and they had disobeyed God, and God had had enough, and he sent these little fiery serpents among the people, and thousands of people were being bit, and they were being, they were being killed, they were dying in droves, until finally the nation came up to Moses and said, help us, we're sorry, we repent, right? And so God told Moses to craft a, a serpent of bronze and put upon the staff. And the Bible says as he lifted the staff, it came to be that anyone who looked upon 
the serpent on the staff lived. Anyone who looked upon the serpent on the staff lived. We have a song that we used to sing, look and live, look and live. Turn from yourself, turn to the Savior, look and live. And so when he explained this, he was, he was saying to them that as I am lifted up upon the cross, those who look to me will live. They will live. So let's move on. So that anyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him should not perish but have, present tense, everlasting life. Your everlasting life begins the moment that you trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin as you turn from yourself to the Savior, as you turn from your way to His way. I like to say your way to Yahweh, that's the name of God. You will be saved. Lord, I'm so sick of this sin in my life. I'm so tired of this burden. I want to be freed from it. I want to follow hard after you, Jesus. Please save my eternal soul. And the Bible says that you will be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Understood? Do you, do you understand that this morning? The gift that God has given to us? And we're going to see his motivation here. For God loved the world in this way. For God so loved the world That was his motivation for coming to earth, wrapping himself in flesh and becoming a son of man was because he loved us that much. That should be motivation motivation for us to love him back, shouldn't it? He loved us so much he endured tremendous torture. He goes on and he says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Hold on to that tightly if you're a Christian this morning. Because a lot of Christians I find today, and I think our church has grown quite a bit away from this, but a lot of Christians live their lives condemning others. They condemn others. That is to say they they judge and pass judgment on others. Not discern right from wrong. Like I can discern someone is stealing and I can confront them but to condemn them. You follow? So Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world to hell. He came into the world so that the world might be saved through Him. Here's another important distinction. The world must be saved through Jesus. There is no other way but Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father, but through Him. Is that good? He loved us so much that He made the way. Not to condemn the world. Now there's Christians also. Not only are they condemning to one another, not only do they stand and pass judgment on one another, but they're condemning to the world. They're condemning to those who have not yet come to Christ. You've seen the idiotic so-called church, Westboro Baptist Church. It's a church out in, well, I mean, it's a church out in Kansas. It's not a Baptist church. It's an evil church. And they'll go to funerals of people and they'll protest. They'll protest veterans' funerals. They, they are just looking to sue people. 
and they're evil and they condemn people. They condemn people. Well, that's an extreme, isn't it? Would you say that's an extreme? So what about when it's not an extreme? Is it, is it, is it any better when it's not an extreme? I was, uh, I was pastoring a church over in Loudoun, Landmark Baptist Church. Uh, and we had this uh, longtime member. She's passed away now, but she was a longtime member. And as she got older, I don't know if she was always cantankerous, uh, but as she got older, man, it got worse. And uh, some of you have heard this story. I remember uh, this, this uh, young woman came into our church, and she was either dressed in tight jeans or a miniskirt or something. I don't recall. My deacon had informed me of what had happened. But she had said out loud, I think this woman sat in her seat, and she had said out loud, I can't believe how some people come dressed to church. Don't they know any better? Is that condemning or what? You think that draws people to the Savior? It's a little more subtle than God hates you. Right? A little more subtle than that. God hates fags. Those are the signs that they have up at their idiotic protests. Right? But it was condemning to that young woman. We don't know if that woman knew Jesus. That may have turned that woman away from Christ. We just don't know. Thank God Bill, my deacon, took care of it before I had a chance to. He was a wonderful deacon. He knew what needed to be done, and he did it, and then he told me that he did it. Sometimes it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Just saying. Uh, Listen, man, I believe in unchaining the leadership, giving them authority to go at their position so they can do the work of the ministry. Right? We shouldn't be handcuffing leaders. Anyways, we should not be condemning the world like that either. But then there's something a little bit more subtle. When a church becomes legalistic and condemning in their attitude, they may not even have to say a word. Not even say a word. But people walk through the door and they take their seats and people are looking at them in a certain way that causes them to feel condemned. So we, we removed about 90% of extra biblical standards in our church years ago. <clears throat> and there was a young man that came into the church. Uh, he was wearing jeans and a t-shirt. I have it on good authority that he could not afford his rent. But he came out to church. He wasn't a believer. And there was something about our church that he really loved, that he really appreciated. And so he wanted to come back. So this young man that could not afford to pay his rent went out and bought a brand new dress shirt and khaki pants. Because he didn't feel like he could fit in here. Now, if you're a condemning Christian, you might think to yourself, oh, wow. Look at him growing in the Lord. The only problem with that is he didn't know the Lord. So we look on these outward appearances and we condemn people. You don't even have to say anything. Sometimes your looks or just the aura that you give off can be condemning to people. 
What is your purpose of coming to church? Your purpose should be to be the blessing to God and be the blessing to others. To love as Jesus loves. Let's go on. He goes on and he says, Anyone who believes in Him, in Jesus Himself, is not condemned. Romans chapter 8 says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are of God, who are the children of God. Romans chapter 8, 1. Look at what it says here. Anyone who believes on Him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe. And church, we need to take this seriously. Anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. But if they do not believe, they're already condemned because they have not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. That is Jesus. That is Jesus. And so the whole law can be summed up in that one word. Love. Can be summed up in love. The love of God for His creation motivated Him to take responsibility for His creation. And He loved us through the law being fulfilled in Christ. And because the law was fulfilled in Christ, He made a way back to Himself. That those who trust in Jesus are not condemned. And so ultimately the the law to the believer is not to be used to condemn one another. It's not to be used to condemn the world. It reveals sin so they know that they're guilty before God. But it is to be used to show love. Love is an action. Love is affection, but affection results in action. Love is an action. The law shows us the behavior we should have when we love others. You follow? So a lot of times we'll say this, the Word of God is like a, like, a, like a speedometer, or I'm sorry, like the warning lights on your dashboard. And the framework of love is like a warning light on your dashboard. When you start to realize that I'm not acting in a way that portrays the love of Christ, you have their, your check engine light starts flashing. When you read the Word of God and you realize that I'm not acting in a way that portrays love, that check engine light is flashing. And what should you do? Or your oil light starts flashing. What should you do when your oil light starts flashing? Does anybody know? Some older person shout this out so the younger people know what to do. Shut the engine off. Stop. There's something wrong. Examine yourself. Consider yourself. Okay? A lot of us blame others when we're not as loving as we should be, but we need to consider ourselves. Consider yourself, the whole law is love. The action and attitude of love is defined for us in Scripture. I think I was sharing with you, I I have a counselor, and and we were counseling one day, and he said to me, Eric, you need to learn to love yourself. And have I told you this already? And John said, you need to learn to love yourself. And I'm like, not a fan, not a fan of me. I don't like this whole, oh, love yourself. Right? I just don't like it. I feel like it's self-serving, self-centered. That's just how I felt. And he said, I think you might be misunderstanding what I'm saying. I'm not saying put yourself above everybody. I'm not saying it's time for me now. I've helped everybody and now it's my turn. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is apply this to you. 
Love is patient. Uh, love is, is kind. Love does not envy, is not arrogant, is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. It's not irritable or easily provoked. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness. Oh, but it rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so this morning, we want to consider the law as it, as it appears to be love, and we want to lay the framework of love over our lives, over our decisions, over our discernment, over how we interact with people. We need to learn to discern how we should interact with those, especially who don't have Christ, and with those that do have Christ. And so let's take a look at the framework. Well, first of all, we discern things around us, our own actions included. We take this passage and we lay it over our lives. And so here are, here are some descriptions of, uh, or, or definitions of what we just read through. First of all, love is patient. That is to say, it's long-suffering. Love uh, is, is even-tempered while enduring trying circumstances. Did you, did you hear that? Love is even-tempered. Let your moderation be made known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. We know how we can love with patience because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Even-tempered, patient, enduring tribulations and trials with grace. Love is kind. It's gentle, warm-hearted, considerate, humane, it's sympathetic. We lay that framework over our own lives and we ask ourselves, does this describe me as I interact with those who do not know Jesus? Does it describe me as I interact with my own family? And if it doesn't, folks, don't condemn yourself. And this is what John was trying to teach me. Stop condemning yourself. The Word of God to the believer is not condemnation. It is a light and it is life and it is power and support for you to be transformed. So when you see that warning light on your dash, the warning light's not condemning you and that light starts flashing. What should you do? You should stop. Examine yourself. Am I being kind? Love's not envious. To become painfully desirous of another's advantages. Painfully desirous of another's advantages. Uh, in, the, in the law, it says, love does not covet, or thou shalt not covet. Right? Love is not envious. It isn't boastful, exhibiting self-importance. You ever meet someone like that? Better than everybody else. Holier than thou? Ever meet a Christian like that? Can't stand it. Love is not boastful. It isn't arrogant. So one is exhibiting self-importance. The other is being puffed up, proud, 
arrogant. The word literally means to be puffed up with air, right? Uh, full of yourself, you could say. You ever find yourself that way, full of yourself? It's all about me. I'm the most important person in the room. My feelings count way more than your feelings do. Arrogant. I'm the best. Nobody could ever come close to me. When you stop learning, you might recognize that eh, you get a little arrogance going on in there. None of us have ever arrived, and we won't arrive until we reach glory. You know that? As a Christian, you're not going to arrive until you cross the pearly gates. We're all a work in progress. Don't set yourself up above others. Hey, all Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to know more, please go to our website, emmanuelhooksit.com, where you'll find helpful links and resources and where you can contact us directly. That web address again is emmanuelhooksit.com. Bless God, get out there, and be the blessing. Thank you.